Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Alex. And I'm Hannah. This week we're talking to Stan Blackley, a lecturer and co-programme leader on the Master of Gastronomy degree at Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh. Now, we have to admit something here. When we first decided to do a mini-series on food science, we imagined we'd be discussing the science behind foam-topped fillets and bubbling cocktails that change colour with heat. The first words that came to our minds were molecular gastronomy. But on further research, we found that this isn't quite what gastronomy means. Digging in further, we discovered gastronomy is about much more than just the food. What Stan Blackley introduces us to in this episode is a flavour of how food relates to us as people and how it helps to shape our lives and the world we live in. He gives us tasty tips on ethical, responsible food choices and the all-meal replacement drinks taste the same. We think this is the perfect episode to kick off the series and hope you do too. So sit back, grab your favourite snack and enjoy. As a small aside, I have to add that I'm deeply sorry for my audio quality throughout this interview. I hope your ears will forgive me. I've since gotten a mic, as you can hear, so please bear with me for this episode, and I promise it will only be these crisp, clear tones after this episode. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. My name is Stan Blackley. I'm the programme leader and a lecturer on the MSc Gastronomy course at Edinburgh's Queen Margaret University. So how did you get into gastronomy? I fell backwards into gastronomy. Like many people, I had an ill-conceived view of what gastronomy was and thought it was about fancy food. My background is in environmental politics. Before I entered academia, I was uh, an environmental campaigner. I worked for organizations like uh, Greenpeace and so on. And over many years, began to realize that food was a major driver of environmental and social problems. It was the cause of a lot of the difficulties that the, the planet and its people were facing. But also that if we could fix food, we could begin to fix those problems. That if food drives these problems, if we change the food, we can change these problems as well. So that's how I got interested in food. I then decided to study the MSc Gastronomy at Queen Margaret University. And at the end of the course, they offered me a job teaching on it. And (laughs) that was entirely unexpected. Amazing. So you mentioned that people have misconceptions about what gastronomy is. And uh, to be perfectly honest, so did we. So we're really interested to hear what our assumptions were and what it was about the course that really changed those perceptions. Gastronomy is a slippery term. It's very polysemic. It has many, many different meanings. And if you ask any one of your listeners right now, they'll probably have a different definition or a different experience of what gastronomy is. Over the last couple of hundred years, it's become very much attached to fine dining and fancy food and chefs in tall hats and people doing, you know, delicate work with tiny little pebbles of amazing taste and so on. And what we try to do at the MSc Gastronomy is reclaim that term, take it back to its uh, original etymology. If you look at the literal translation from ancient Greek, you're looking at nomos, knowledge, and gaster, stomach, so knowledge of the stomach being aware of and informed about the way that we eat. And so 
what we've done is tried to take it beyond the very narrow, reduced scope of gastronomy, which is fancy chefing. It is a part of gastronomy, of course, but it's like saying chemistry is all of science. There are other sciences. Um, gastronomy is taking food as a lens to study the world or using the world as a lens to study food. And so as a gastronomer, you begin to realise that food is more than just the thing that we incorporate. It's more than just the thing that we eat to gain calories and for subsistence. But instead, it's a thing that is attached to our practice of ourself, of our identity, our relationships, our cultures, the environment around us, the economy that uh, we create around us, and everything else. Food touches everything on this planet. And yet we take it for granted. It's so ubiquitous that we almost ignore the power and the relevance and the importance of food. So what gastronomy does is tries to pull back that focus and allow people to recognise that food is really, really important, not just as the thing we eat, but also the thing that we just live for. Absolutely. And so one of the things that we were interested in knowing a bit more about was how do you think that food can be used to communicate some of these issues and to also understand some of these issues? So things like climate change or history. Yeah, this is a real, um, a real benefit of using food to teach. In the end, what we teach at the MSc Gastronomy is 200 different subjects. It can be linguistics, it can be anthropology, it can be economics, it can be history. But we teach them all with reference to food. We all experience food every day, even those of us who struggle to get it. And so we all find it tangible. We all can relate to food. And that's the power of food in that it makes things real for people. And so rather than try to explain the nature of anthropogenic climate change to people, and immediately they hear these big long terms and go, oh God, and I'm so sick of this and this, this COP thing happening and oh my goodness, no. You can talk to them about the impact that climate change will have on coffee and chocolate. Two things that we might have to do without if we're not careful, if we don't really get our finger out and do something in the next 100 days or so. So it makes things more tangible, but also easier to talk about. You all have sat in the pub or in a restaurant and talked about food. Try stopping people talking about food. They love to talk about what they eat and why they eat it, and what they hate and what their grandmother used to make them and the memories that that evokes and all these amazing things that food does for us. So we use food, for example, salmon is a very good way in Scotland to look at the debate around sustainability. There are those people who think salmon farming is a great way to provide cheap protein. There are those who think that salmon farming is an environmental disaster. And so that debate can be had, but at the same time, we can actually cook and eat fish. We can have uh, debates about diversity by talking about anything from wine to bananas to potatoes. Scotland has 4,000 varieties of potatoes, but how many can you buy in the shops? And why is that the case? And when we have potato diseases that threaten to wipe out the, the types that we do grow, why are we not growing more? And why are we not savouring the fact that there are blue ones and purple ones and red ones that are really watery ones and they're really crisp ones and are waxy ones and dry ones and flowery ones? Why don't we use that breadth of potato to make our life better? instead of just having the three types you can buy in any supermarket that you would go to today. So that's how food makes things relevant and tangible. I can see from your faces talking to you here online that you're already enjoying the conversation, <laughs> I hope. And so there's, there's nothing you can't teach with food. 
because food is everything. And so you can pick or choose. And even when, for example, in the course we have a, a different cohort from year to year, we can actually steer which foods we use to their ethnicity, to their background, to their experiences, and use different foods to teach the same subjects. And it becomes a really, really powerful tool in just making stuff much more interesting than it is when, did I say it, reductionist scientists reduce it to academic papers full of long words. Food is a really powerful communication tool. It actually reminds me of when I was trying to get someone to swap to using a renewable energy provider and I tried different things like, you know, the climate, you've got to care about that or the cost savings, you've got to care about that, but nothing was working. And when I spoke about how the wine crops or the grapes were going to be wiped out if, you know, maybe over-exaggerated, but would be wiped out if climate change hits them. And as it is doing right now, that was the thing that got them was the fact that wine would no longer be on the shelves. And I thought that was really, I hadn't appreciated at the time, but I think that's really a good example of how you can use food to persuade people or communicate a complex topic in a much more personal way. Absolutely. And there's not a single food that we eat that you can't use in that fashion to be an example of something, sometimes everything. Uh, And so you can ask people, what is your favourite food? And if they're climate sceptic, you can then use that food in some way. But also you can give people loads of other reasons. The food system is rife with uh, problems. There is child labour, there is slavery environmental degradation and pollution we're damaging water we're damaging soil we're damaging communities we're damaging our own health there are a thousand reasons within food that you can use a thousand ways to connect with people and their interests and again that's the power of food if someone's only interest is linguistics you can still use food to do that if someone's only interest is astronomy you can still do food to use that, which is what most people, when they hear that I'm a gastronomy lecturer, think I do. I have to say it does have a G on the beginning. (laughs) For those people questioning their eating habits, do you have any top tips on them for helping their local environment and helping at a more global level? Actually, I thought you might ask this, and I decided to uh, grab a book called Food Rules by Michael Pollan. Now, we would teach on the MSc gastronomy course that there are no rules. But of course, food is full of rules. We use certain cutlery, we eat certain ways, we eat certain things in certain uh, places and so on. But his food rules are very simple. It's a book that costs a fiver and I don't get any commission for recommending it, but it's full of really, really good advice. The overarching uh, advice in this is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. But it's full of great little things, and I actually bookmarked a few, like avoid food products that contain more than five ingredients. Avoid food products that make health claims. Avoid foods you see advertised on TV. Eat foods made from ingredients that you can picture in their raw state growing in nature. And if it came from a plant, eat it. If it was made in a plant, don't. And they're really good, cool little phrases. And they're uh, in a little book that you can flick through. It's not hard work. It's not fiercely academic. It's just really good fun, but very thoughtful too. It tells you don't eat anything your great-grandmother wouldn't recognize. And actually, when you begin to think about these things, they make absolute sense. They're very simple ways of avoiding over-processed or heavily sweetened or environmentally destructive foods they channel you into eating locally or seasonally 
or from sources that are kinder to the planet and kinder to people, whether that's fair trade or whether that's organic or any of the other things that you can do. So my advice would be, if you see this little book, it's only a fiver, grab it and flick through it. It's a really highly entertaining read and I keep it really handy uh, and dip into it all the time. Thank you. That's a great recommendation. I suppose that leads on to another question that we had that we perhaps now know your answer to. We were curious to know what your thoughts were on things like meal replacements, so like smoothies, for example, from either a health perspective or a social perspective or whatever perspective it might be. So meal replacement shakes have a place in the food system. There are people in hospital who can't swallow because of an infirmity who have to be fed with liquid foods. There are a number of different reasons why you would choose or have to replace meals with shakes. We each year do a a meal replacement shake tasting session within the course. And there's a range, isn't there? There's the ones that you drink to build weight, and there's the ones that you drink to lose weight, and there are the ones that you drink as a lifestyle choice, and so on. And what we generally, each year, come up with is that they're a bit joyless. They don't really taste half as good as the manufacturers will make you believe. But more than that, they take away all that's really good around food. Why do we eat other than to subsist? We eat for pleasure. We eat for relationship. We eat with each other. We enjoy tastes and flavors and experiences. We enjoy when we eat things, the physiological effects that it has on us, the memories it evokes, these situations in which we can eat. And when you reduce eating to three times a day, supping some gloop from a bottle, you kind of miss out on all of that stuff. You miss out on the good stuff about food. And so I'm not going to argue that they're rubbish, even though they are. I'm just going to say that people who are drawn to this alternative meal lifestyle would benefit from taking a step back and seeing what they're missing and asking themselves, why am I too busy for food? Food has somehow been moved to one side and it's something that interrupts our busy schedule of soulless work. Yet food is what makes us who we are. Food is what a way through which we practice our self and our identity and our culture and our relationships. And so if we're too busy to do that, we're really not enjoying life. If we're too busy doing something else instead, like earning money, to actually sit down with people and chat and chew, then there's probably something quite wrong with us. It's really hard to follow that. Coming back to the rules that you mentioned before, you said one was not having anything with more than five ingredients. So what, what are your thoughts on vegetarian meat replacements where there's, there's definitely more than five ingredients going on there? And some people seem to use that as a, a crutch, myself included, to try and get away from eating meat, but not knowing what to do to make a more rounded meal. This is a situation in which food becomes complex. And this is where gastronomers, we hope, the people that we educate in our course, are able to begin to embrace the complexity of this. On one hand, we know that industrial meat production is a massive driver of enormous issues, whether it's animal welfare issues, whether it's resource issues, whether it's deforestation, whether it's climate emissions, whether it's pollution, and so on and so on. On the other hand, we know that a lot of the ingredients that go into these heavily processed non-meat foods are sourced from production processes that are every bit 
as bad in the same way or in different ways. The classic one is the uh, that people will know, I think, is the alternative milks. People will move from dairy because they don't like the idea of calves being taken for their mothers or the kind of industrialised nature of the dairy system in Scotland and elsewhere. And they will go to drinking almond milk as the classic example, potentially unaware that that almond milk is driving uh, water scarcity problems where it's grown, that the nature of the animal welfare problems linked to that in terms of the way that pollinators are used industrially to provide that crop. And even some of the labour practices where migrant workers in the US are treated abominably close to slavery conditions, then make that milk every bit as bad as the milk that they're trying to avoid. Now that is depressing, I know, but that's the joy of gastronomy. What we do is we like to turn the plate. You can have any single food on the plate, and as soon as someone says this is the right food to eat, you can turn your view just a little bit. And instead of looking at it in terms of animal welfare or climate, you can look at it in terms of resource use or water or labour or all of the other amazing things that go into food that we take for granted and forget that food embodies. And there's nothing right to eat, guys. You know, in the end, everything you eat has an impact. So I feel like we've touched upon some of the conflicting topics that I myself also have in that obviously there's all these things that you need to think about. So where does it come from? What nutritional value does it have? How processed is it? All of those things versus the amount of time you have in your day to actually dedicate to doing all of that every time you go shopping or before you go shopping. And so I'm curious to know, are there any ways that you think the food industry could change going forward that would just make it that little bit easier for everyone to make those decisions without having to put too much effort into it? Yeah, well, I mean, it would be nice if the food industry was motivated by health and sustainability rather than profit. The food industry is highly industrialized, highly globalized, highly centralized. And there's a handful of massive companies that feed us in the world. The companies, there are six big seed companies in the world. There are um, eight big food companies in the UK. There are, what, seven or eight supermarkets. We would probably benefit from having much more diversity in that system. If you think about where you have to go for your food of a day in Edinburgh, you actually don't have that much choice. It's a supermarket or a small shop. And it would be lovely if you had more choice, but also a diversity of choice within that choice. Supermarkets stock what they want you to eat. Supermarkets stock what they make the most money out of. Supermarkets then force down the system through their influence, farmers to grow the products for those processors to make those products. Wouldn't it be nice if we weren't part of that system and didn't have to rely on that system for 95% of what we eat? And instead could take a choice, pick from local producers, pick from a variety of producers, walk along a row of stalls that has 4,000 types of potato on it rather than the usual three. There are something like 2,000 types of banana in the world, but how many bananas can you buy in all of the supermarkets and any of the shops in the UK? You can't get the blue ones or the black ones, the savoury ones, the hard ones, the giant ones and the tiny ones. All you can get is the Cavendish banana. And it's a symbol of our industrialised food system. It's the one that can be grown in massive monoculture. It's the one that, at least until recently, 
didn't fall foul of uh, a disease of bananas called Panama disease. It's the one that you can pick green when it's hard and travel across the world and then doze with ethylene gas and make it yellow and put it in the shops again. But by God, it's the world's most boring banana. And <laughs> as someone who enjoys and eats a banana, um, I think it would be great if we could go into uh, 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 the food system and enjoy a variety of those and different bananas for different purposes. Wouldn't that be astonishing? Wouldn't that just be amazing? Mm-hmm. Well, I really loved when we were looking at more about you. And in fact, at the end of your email tagline, you have a link to this fantastic video, which uh, I guess we'd call a promo for the course. And you have all these people holding up products being like, this bread is gastronomy or this beer is gastronomy. Are there any of these local products that uh, you could tell us about that are gastronomy to these people? Um, well, in the in the video, if I remember rightly, somebody talks about baked beans. Yes. <laughs> and baked beans remind them of their granny, giving them baked beans on toast. And that's why they are gastronomy. Um, other people talk, I think the person that talks about beer talks about how beer is a symbol of a system because it comes from wheat and barley in a field through a, 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 a process of a brewing, which involves fermentation and chemistry into uh, packaging, through marketing, into uh, bars uh, and so on to us. And then it has a physiological impact on us and then it causes uh, poor behaviour in society, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's gastronomy. Look at that. Just beer alone covers every single part of that. Bread is another one. When you think about everything that goes into bread, you can see that buying wheat from a certain place might support an uh, unpleasant regime. You can see that the nature of where it came from might have been really energy intensive because of the way that it's been transported or stored, and so on and so on and so on. And in fact, there's a, a very good uh, textbook called Food the Key Concepts by a man called Warren Belasco, in which chapter one, when he talks about why you should study food, he unpicks bread. And it's te- 10 pages long of here's all the things that bread can influence. Here are all the things that have gone into the bread. Here are all the things that come out of the bread. And here's all the processes in the middle. And he finishes the chapter off with saying, oh, and we haven't even started with the plastic bag. (laughs) And it's joyful, absolutely joyful. It really allows you to understand the complexity of everything that goes into how we feed ourselves and how we nourish ourselves. Going back to Jean Anthem, uh, Briat Savaran, what he always argued was that food was more than just food. It was about the nature of the nourishment of humankind and that gastronomer, gastronomy was the study of the nourishment of humankind and the many ways that we can make ourselves feel good and be good to each other. And I think that's, uh, that's something that we forget an awful lot of the time. You know, go away today and buy somebody a bottle of wine, take them a bunch of grapes, bake a cake for somebody, share a pizza. All these little bits of joy that you can give people through food that we ignore in the many ways we've talked about already in the in our discussion. Have food for pleasure. Now, I have a quote from Carlo Petrini. I don't know if you know who that is, but he was the founder of the slow food movement in the 80s. Carlo Petrini recognized that we were living in an increasingly fast industrialized world and argued that for food to be good, it had to be clean, it had to be fair. 
and that we were losing these concepts. And in fact, he's, the organisation's very first thing they did was when the first McDonald's opened in Rome, they set out tables outside and had a picnic and invited people <laughs> to sit and eat with them and enjoy local, seasonal, high-quality, artisan produce as a reaction and said to them, don't grab and go, sit, chat, we'll get some wine. <laughs> and uh, Carlo Petrini is seen as kind of the modern father of gastronomy. He had, took Briat Savarin's idea of pleasure and added to it responsibility, this idea that you can enjoy food, you should enjoy food, you should know about food, but also you should know about its consequences and use it as a tool for good, food for good. And if you'll forgive me, I'll just try and find this quote from him. He said, yeah, a gastronomer who is not an environmentalist is stupid, but an environmentalist who's not a gastronomer is merely sad. <laughs> so what we tell our students is that, um, yes, recognise that food can be miserable at times and it has horrible impacts around the world but bloody hell enjoy it that's what it's for go back to the pleasure go back to the nourishment go back to sharing and commensality and community and relationships and all these great things that you can build with food and don't ever lose sight of that otherwise you're not a gastronomer a huge thank you to Stan for joining us on the show and helping everyone, or at least Alex and I, learn what gastronomy truly means. You can find Stan on Twitter on at Stan Blackley. And if you're inspired to take a look at the Master of Gastronomy at Queen Margaret University, we'll link that in the show notes. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Media. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university and beyond. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. This episode was hosted by me, Alex Bailey, and for the first time ever, Hannah Muir. The podcast logo was designed by USI Chief Editor Apple Chu, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkarama by Kevin McLeod. And the outro music is an editing version of Footballs in Space by Professor Colin Campbell. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it science. We did it. I bet we didn't do it, and we get to editing, and we're like, oh, that's awful. <laughs> like, we spent 15 minutes recording, and my mic doesn't work. <laughs> oh, see, actually. You joke, but when I'm talking, it's not coming up in the audio. <laughs>